Well, when Shannon and I first got married, uh, we attended a church where every Sunday morning the pastor would jump up after the singing, before the preaching, and he would make the statement that God is good. And then the church would respond to that. And then that would cause him to make another statement to which the church would respond again. So some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you have no clue. This might be your first time in church in a long time or first time ever. And so just play along here. So Liberty Heights Church, this morning I declare that God is good. All the time. And all the time, God is good. See, it was pretty easy, right? Let's try that again. God is good. And all the time, right. Many of us don't realize how deep the theology runs in that statement. It runs so deep. We are saying this morning that God, by his very holy and divine nature, is good. Not because of what he does, not because of how he answers our prayer, but because of who he is. He is good by nature. I wonder this morning how many of us really truly believe that now practically speaking or theoretically speaking we we believe it but practically speaking uh, do we really so often I hear this statement made in the context of God answering a prayer God answered my prayer therefore God is good Uh, the test came back negative therefore God is good or my my husband or my spouse has returned my marriage is on the mend God is good Or how about this one? My son or my daughter made the team. God is good. But can we say that and mean it when the opposite happens? When God doesn't answer our prayers according to how we've prayed, the test comes back positive. Can we still say that God is good? When our marriage ends, can we still say that God is good when our son or daughter doesn't make the team or when our house doesn't sell, can we still say that God is good? Well, this morning we want to continue in our study of 1 Peter, and so I'm going to ask you if you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. The year was 1995, I think I was about 20 years old, I was a college junior, and during spring break I traveled on a missions trip uh, with my dad. My dad was a pastor of a large, uh, he was a missions pastor of a large church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And he was uh, traveling to the country of Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan was one of the former states within the Soviet Union. And he was looking for mission opportunities for partnerships. In fact, we were actually sneaking large sums of money, uh, green cash, into the country to help fund the underground printing presses. And I got to tell you, I was so disappointed when I got there and I discovered that the underground printing presses were not actually underground. Uh, It was a figure of speech I learned as a 20-year-old that it was just done in secret. The Soviet Union and communism had technically had fallen, but the reality of it was that they'd forgotten to tell the KGB, and it was still very much a militant state. I remember seeing lots of guns and machine guns and looking real close at her passports. And so my dad would go to these meetings all day long, and I would stay back at the hotel in Tashkent, which is the capital city. And Tashkent had not yet received ESPN and CNN. In fact, I don't think they even had a TV in the room, uh, if you could call it a hotel room. And so I had all this time on my hand, and I remember spending uh, several days just learning large passages of Scripture. And for whatever reason, I was drawn to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, and they go something like this. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. 
but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Well, we're going to continue in this study of 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, this, this study of 1 Peter has really been almost a, a theology course or a seminary course called the Theology of Suffering. Now, we know the context of this letter. The Apostle Peter had written a letter to the early church. And the early, early church was being persecuted. And so he was giving them a challenge, a call to holiness, to live a holy life. But you can't unpack that from the fact that they were being persecuted. And so those things stack together. So he's saying, in spite of your persecution, and in spite of the difficulty that you're walking through, there's a strong call to holiness and to live a holy life. And so in this study, we have learned a couple things. We have learned the what of suffering. What is suffering? It's literally the training in righteousness. It's those difficult things that God sovereignly allows into our lives to grow us and to shape us and to mold our character. We've learned the who of suffering. In fact, we learned that from Paul who wrote in 1 Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We have learned the why of suffering because it deepens our faith and it makes us dependent on God for our strength. And then these last few weeks, we have studied the how of suffering. How are we to suffer we are, we are to suffer in such a way that makes Jesus attractive. And so this morning we're given another really specific list of instructions. And I love how these lay out, how we're to conduct ourselves in the midst of difficult times. But before we get there, I want to back up. I want to take you back one chapter. And so let's flip back in our Bibles to chapter 2 and verse 9. And, and Peter makes some declarations. He makes some declarations about uh, Christ followers, the people that he was writing the letter to, but it's true of us today as Christ followers, okay? So this is a universal truth with regard to us as Christ followers. He says, you are a chosen people, and that sets us apart. He says, you're a royal priesthood, that sets us apart. He says, you are a holy nation, it sets us apart. Then he says, you are a people belonging to to God. When you talk about distinguishing us from everybody else, he's describing us as Christians as a na nation within a nation. Pastor John MacArthur uses the analogy where he looks back at the events leading up to World War II and that ultimately led to the massacre of millions of Jews at the hands of Stalin and Hitler. And when we look back at the why of this ugly chapter in world history, we see that it all happened because of the Jews' inability to assimilate. So these Jews had some quirky uh, cultural identifying marks, okay, things that made them weird with regard to the society that they lived in. They had a different set of diets, a different kind of dress. They wore their hair differently. They had laws and customs and traditions that they held. And they always ended up being a nation within a nation, and for that they were feared. They were seen as a threat because they didn't integrate, they didn't assimilate. They didn't conform culturally. And we know this, that they were doing this because they were trying to preserve their identity. But it was that growing hatred and animosity and the fear of the unknown with regard to this nation within a nation that led to the hostility that broke out in World War II. 
and this, these events that we now refer to as the Holocaust. And we see that the world turns on those that it can't absorb. And so here we are, if that's true of the Jews, how much more true is that of us? Because it's, it's not like some external behavior, it's not like our dress or our diet that sets us apart. It's because we've announced to the world that we're a chosen people. We've announced to the world that we're a royal priesthood. We've announced that we're a holy nation. And then with regard to a people belonging to God, some of your Bibles might say God's own possession. We're setting ourselves apart. We're saying we have a relationship with God that the rest of the world doesn't have. It's not that they can't have it, but they don't. And so we've set ourselves up and we have become a nation within a nation. And that sets the stage for hostility and animosity and persecution, so much so that Peter says a couple verses later in verse 11, he says we're aliens and we're strangers. And so a lot of us as Christians think, okay, when difficult, difficult times come, then the key to, it's just survival. Okay, survival is its own sort of triumph. But the reality of it is, is that Peter's saying, no, it's not about survival. In fact, it's about winning the enemy over to your side. It's about converting the enemy, and you can't fight with them like they fight with you. And so now we come to this passage this morning that starts in verse 13 of chapter 3. And Peter sets out a couple scenarios. He says there's two possibilities here. First thing he says is scenario number one, who's going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Okay, so we like that statement. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? That's what I teach my girls. I teach my girls that if you follow me, and ultimately if you try to please Jesus that good things happen, okay, that good comes from that, that if you try to honor Christ and you're truly and sincerely following Jesus, then we like to think that good things can happen to us, and sometimes they do. But Peter was smart enough to give us another scenario. He says, even if you should suffer for what is right, dot, dot, dot. Okay, so the other scenario is that you may suffer for doing right. We don't like that, but that's the reality of it because the gospel offers us no guarantee for trouble-free life. And so we, given these two scenarios, Peter now gives out a really, really clear set of instructions. And it's really fun how these all fall into place. And so he starts out with the first instruction. He says, you need to cheer up. You need to cheer up. Where do we get this from? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Okay, now the word blessed is not, a blessed is not a word that we use a lot in modern language, right? It's kind of Christian speak. And now it's made a little bit of a comeback as it's on Facebook now. So Facebook wants you to um, say, I'm feeling, and then it gives you all these feelings. And then as Christians, we have picked up this word blessed. And so you see on everybody's Facebook on Sunday mornings, hey, I'm blessed to be at Liberty Heights Church. I'm blessed to be serving the students at Liberty Heights Church. I'm blessed to get to church and find out that Brad's not speaking today. Okay, we're blessed. This word blessed is the same word that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount. We call it the greatest sermon ever preached. And it's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. And he said, blessed are those that are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so that word blessed, it comes from the original Greek word of markarios. Markarios. Listen to what that means. It means happiness that comes from being in the enviable position of receiving or having God's provision or favor. Okay? Happiness that comes from being in the enviable position of receiving God's favor or provision. 
And you're like, well, wait a minute. That's exactly the opposite of how I feel. When the world's pressing down on me, when it's coming at me from every direction, what do we say? God, where are you? Where have you gone? And the reality of Peter saying, listen, stop trusting your emotions, okay? Stop, tr- stop trusting your feelings. Because the reality of it is God's favor is on you. And so we need to cheer up. Isn't it ironic that some of the grumpiest people that we know are Christ followers? They're Christians. Because they walk around because all these bad things that have happened to us and our life is difficult and our life is hard. And what's Pastor Brad say? If you're happy and you know it, tell your face. We need to tell our face a reminder to be happy because we live life of joy. But more than that, we know from this, when we break down the text, we know that God's favor is on us. And that's an enviable position to be in. So Peter's telling everybody, you need to cheer up. The second instruction he gives us here, he says this. He says, do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. It's in the last part of verse 14. He says, give up. Give up your fear. Now, if you have a Bible that uh, has some cross-references in it, you can see that Peter was probably, uh, he was actually quoting the prophet Isaiah. And the prophet Isaiah said these very words to the children of Israel uh, hundreds of years earlier. When they were at the, uh, the city of Jerusalem was surrounded by the Assyrians on every side. And the Assyrians were about to annihilate them. And the prophet Isaiah says to them, he says, do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. Don't be scared the way the world would be scared. Because here's the deal. At the end of the day, no matter how many Assyrians you see, the reality of it is, is your army plus God equals more than all of them. And so Peter's echoing these thoughts and he says, we need to give up being afraid. We need to give up our fear. We need to give up being intimidated. Then he gives us the next instruction. He says, we need to lift up, but in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. We need to set apart Christ as Lord. What does that mean? Some of your Bibles may uh, say sanctify. We need to sanctify Christ as Lord. I love what the New Living Translation says. If you were to um, ask our students, our student pastor, Pastor Sean or Shannon, with regard to our children, hey, I want to get my son or my daughter a Bible, what version do you recommend? They're probably going to tell you the NLT, the New Living Translation. And listen to what it says about this verse. It says, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. You must worship Christ as Lord of your life. We have to set apart Christ. We have to determine beforehand, even when it's not popular or that it's not easy, that Christ is Lord. Now, in the original um, context of this, if you were in the marketplace as a Christ follower and you were to declare in front of everybody, you were to say, Jesus is God. It wasn't that risky. It wasn't really a revolutionary statement. Here's why. They had lots of gods. The Greeks and the Romans had all kinds of gods that they believed in. And so there was room for your God. There was room for my God. We all had a God that made us happy. But if you were to stand up and you were to make this statement, Jesus is Lord and there is no other. Well, now you've got a big problem. Because the reality of it was that the Roman Caesars claimed the title of Lord. And so if you were willing to stand up and say, Jesus is Lord and we recognize no other well, then you were going to be persecuted, and that's exactly what was happening. But Peter's saying, we have to set apart Christ as Lord. We have to determine this beforehand. We have to determine that only Christ matters. See, when we determine that only Christ matters, the reality of it is, 
is that nothing can touch us. We can sleep well at night knowing that nothing can touch us that doesn't first pass through the loving, sovereign hands of our Father. In fact, this is the only possible explanation for the long line of martyrs through history because they set apart Christ as Lord. They determined way before the trouble came that Christ was Lord. They determined that only Christ matters. And so when he says, gives us this this instruction, lift up, means only Christ matters. Think about those words for just a second. Whenever I preach a funeral, I usually end it by asking this question, a hundred years from now, what's the only thing that's going to matter? And the answer is the only thing that matters is Christ. And so everybody within the sound of my voice this morning, a hundred years from now, most of us, probably all of us, are not going to be here. And the reality of it is, what's the only thing that matters? The only thing that matters is Christ. We need to hear this. We need to repeat it. We need to teach it to our kids. We need to tell it to each other. Because until we set apart Christ as Lord, we're not going to be ready for our suffering. So then Paul, or excuse me, Peter gives us a fourth instruction. He says we need to speak up. Okay, this is one of my favorites. We need to speak up. Where do I get that? But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. And he says, but do it with gentleness and respect. So that word answer in the ancient Greek was the word apologia. Okay, apologia literally meant it was a legal defense that was given in the court of law. Now, we get our term uh, apology from that. Now, uh, Peter's not saying we need to apologize for our faith. We need to apologize for what we believe. No, he's saying we need to be ready at a moment's notice to give defense of the what and the why and the how we believe. Why do we believe what we believe? And so we also get the term apologetics from this word. And so the apologetics, you know what that is? That is the study of our faith. And it's the study of our faith in such a way that we look for all kinds of facts, even outside of the Bible. So we look for facts in nature and facts in history that validate or verify that the Bible is true. And so if you are uh, in the world of apologetics, if that's your background, then you're called an apologist. And so there's some famous apologists that you've probably heard of. C.S. Lewis is one of the apologists. Uh, C.S. Lewis was a great philosopher. He was a great writer. He wrote the book... Uh, the book series, The Chronicles of Narnia. But he was an apologist. He helped people learn how to defend their faith. Modern-day apologist is Josh McDowell, probably one of my favorite. Josh McDowell spends his days on college campuses teaching students how to defend their faith. There's another one. I, I love the story of Lee Strobel. Maybe you've heard of Lee Strobel. He's written the book, A Case for Christ. And several years ago, his wife had come to Christ. He was an investigative reporter an investigative journalist, I think it was for like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, one of the big publications. And so when his wife did this, he set out to prove how crazy she was. And so he spent two years gathering all the facts and all the evidence that he could, that he could find to disprove the Bible. And after two years, he laid all these facts out in front of him, and he objectively looked at them, and he came to the conclusion that only Christ matters. It's such a cool story, but here's the other thing. We've talked about how to make Jesus attractive in your marriage. For two years, his wife had made Jesus attractive in their marriage. And ultimately, he gave his life to Christ. But here's the problem. When you get in a bind, 
C.S. Lewis is dead. I'm pretty sure you're probably not going to get a hold of Josh McDowell. And I'm pretty sure that there's a good waiting list to get through to Lee Strobel. But the fact of the matter is, is that we don't need to wait for somebody to come and answer these questions for us. We need to learn and figure this out ourselves. We need to be ready to give at a moment's notice an answer for why we believe what we believe. Around here we call our biblical community groups, we call them life groups. Now for some of us we just laugh because that's just the latest fad of what you call groups in, in, the, in the church. You know, we used to, most of us grew up in Sunday school, and then we might have called it adult Bible fellowship, and then we moved to uh, Bible studies that, uh, for life or uh, life-changing Bible studies, and then we landed on life groups. The reason I like life groups is because we've actually made the term life stand for something. It's actually an acronym where we take each of the letters and it makes one of the ingredients for what we want to see take place in life group. The L stands for learning. The I stands for intercession or it's a fancy term for prayer. The F stands for fellowship. The E stands for encouragement. These are all elements that we want to see take place within healthy biblical community. But look what we lead with. We lead with learning. We need to raise the biblical literacy rate. We need to do that by being in a group with each other and together sharing with and coming up with answers as to why we believe what we believe. So a couple weeks ago, I got an email uh, from a friend here at Liberty Heights, and he's in a group of mine, and he says this. He says, so I have this guy at work who says he's agnostic. He's a pretty intelligent guy who has studied religions, and he says to me that people have a need to believe in an afterlife to be okay with death. But basically, it's a cop-out. I just don't have the Bible knowledge to throw at him, and when I think I do, he outsmarts me with his Bible knowledge. Today, he said, I think the beginning of the Bible is the funniest part. It says, God created the heavens and the earth, and then said, let there be light. I guess he created it all in the dark and turned on the light and figured out it was brilliant, huh? He says our religion's made up, and I don't know what else to say or do except pray for him. So the guy that sent me this email by his own testimony is a relatively young Christian, and yet he's here each week sitting in group, soaking in the truth. And when he doesn't know the answer, he's emailing a friend the answer. And if you've ever tried to email me, you know it's hard to get an answer back. And so he real quick emails another friend as well. Because he's always looking for an answer so that when someone asks him about the hope that he has, he can answer them. There's another important thing to understand here. When we talk about apologetics, we talk about apologists, and they claim this verse as their theme verse, and it's a great verse to claim. But the reality of it is that's a secondary application. That's what we call secondary application because it's not the direct application that came from the context of the original letter. The original context, remember, is what? It's suffering. And so I love how this all starts to weave together. Let's go back to the first point where he said, cheer up. Well, why are we cheering up? Because of the tough things that are going on in our lives. And we recognize that that's a sign of God's favor or provision on our lives. And so when we get that test back, that's positive and we get that terrible news and yet when we walk into the office place and people see our reaction and, and they see that we're not frantic and we're not totally panicked and that we seem to have a joy about us, what happens? They ask us about the hope that we have. See how this all starts to weave together. And so we need to learn to speak up. We need to be ready at a moment's notice to give an answer. And then finally he says we need to shape up. Keeping a clear conscience, he says, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ 
might be ashamed of their slander. Last Tuesday, I, I take the girls and a, and a neighbor girl to school, and we listen to Caleb radio on the three-quarters of a mile drive uh, to the freshman high school. And I caught the radio announcer saying this. He said, people can argue with your words, but they can't argue with your life. People can argue with your words, but they can't argue with your life. In other words, we should conduct ourselves in such a way that if someone's going to criticize us, they have to tell a lie to do it. And so we need to shape up. This touches so many different areas of our lives. It speaks to our integrity, keeping your word, speaking the truth, practicing the golden rule, refusing to spread gossip, doing good at work, honoring your boss to his face and behind his back. Obeying the laws, paying your taxes, showing compassion, sharing with those in need. See, if we're, we can't do anything that's going to allow people the opportunity to slander Christ. And if they want to attack us, they're going to have to tell a lie about it. once heard someone define a saint as this. They said a saint is a person who makes it easy to believe in Jesus. And we should be saints. Are you somebody that makes it easy for people to believe in Jesus? I think we should change our vision statement. Our vision statement for the church says making disciples who are gathering, growing, and going. I think it should be making saints who are gathering, growing, and going. Peter's telling us that words whisper, but actions shout, so we need to shape up. And so he runs through those five simple commands. And those five simple commands that we need to instill into our lives and into our conduct And he comes to this conclusion in verse 17. He says, it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing right than for doing evil. And so if we're going to suffer, we need to make uh, sure that we're suffering for the right reasons. Jesus suffered at the hands of evil men. And all across the globe this morning, people are suffering at the hands of evil men. And that's what Peter meant when he said, it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. I don't know if Peter knew when he wrote this letter that within just... Some scholars think a few short years, some think maybe even a few short months later, uh, he was actually executed for his faith. And we don't know the story as recorded in Scripture, but I brought a book with me this morning. It's a great book. Uh, The authors of the Left Behind series, and so that that movie is popular, or was popular here recently in the movie theaters. When those guys were done writing the Left Behind series, they wrote a series called the Jesus Chronicles. And these were stories about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the authors of the Gospels. Uh, the gospel, the first, first four books of the New Testament. And so what they did is they compiled everything they knew and they could find about Matthew and Mark and Luke and John from Scripture. And then they went to history and they figured out in history everything that they could find. And then they went to church history, things that were passed down through times, and then they compiled it all together in the form of a story. And I don't know if you know this, but the gospel of Mark is actually the story of Peter. Okay, Peter told his story to Mark. Mark wrote it down, and he became the famous one, right? No, actually, Mark was a protege of Peter. Peter was like his spiritual father. And so we come to the part of the story in this book, this book about Mark that's really a book about Peter. And we come to that part of the book where Peter's about to be executed. In fact, Peter and his wife, Esther, are both about to be executed. And Mark was visiting Peter in jail, and Peter's begging him to be there that day, and Mark's like, man, I don't want to be a part of this. This is terrible. I don't think I can do it. And and Peter said, listen, you've been like a son to Esther and I. You you can't imagine the comfort that it's going to be if you'll be there. We know that you're there with us that day. And so Mark agreed, and that's where we pick up the story. 
was that afternoon under an unforgiving sun that Mark joined the tens of thousands in Nero's circus as Peter and Esther were brought in chains from their respective cells. The emperor had left the palace and was prominent in his royal box. Mark's heart ached as Peter and Esther stared into each other's eyes, not allowed to get near each other to talk or to communicate. They were forced to kneel about 10 feet apart, and the chief executioner asked questions. Remarkably, for Mark knew they had not had the opportunity to plot together, they answered every inquiry the same and in unison. He said, are you members of the Nazarene sect? We are. Are you guilty of destroying the city of Rome by fire, either by your own hands or by those you hired? We are not. Do you worship the emperor? Caesar Nero as your God, we do not. Do you acknowledge the gods of Rome and bow down to them and sacrifice to them? We do not. Will you renounce your allegiance to Jesus whom you call the Christ and the Messiah and the Son of God? And they said, we will not. Then by the power vested in me by the empire and by Caesar, I sentence you to death. Esther was unbound and led a hundred feet to the center of the arena where she was wrapped with freshly cut animal skins. Mark could only imagine how the bloody skins felt and smelled. Vicious wild dogs were let loose from the cages at one end of the ring, and Esther was prodded and commanded to run, but she would not. Peter cried out, Esther, my beloved, remember the Lord. And as the beasts closed on her, she slowly knelt and raised her hands towards heaven. And the crowd stood and roared as the dogs reached her. And I'll skip through the next few paragraphs, but after she had died, Peter raised his face towards the sun and wept aloud. And Mark stood in the midst of the frenzied crowd that ignored him as he sobbed. As Peter's chains were removed, he appeared pale, as if about to topple. Mark wished he had the power to rescue him, but to Mark's horror, and certainly to Peter's, as he was lifted and guided forward, slaves passed him, with a rough-hewn cross that took Mark's mind back more than three decades. Peter began to resist, to fight, and to pull away. Mark was surprised he had expected Peter to maintain his dignity to the end, the way his wife had. But this was not the fear of death. Plainly, Peter had resigned himself to that. No, he was violently protesting the manner of his execution. Anything but that, he cried. I'm not worthy to suffer the same end as my precious Savior. But the cross was laid on the ground and he was forced upon it. Still he fought and screamed and raged. And as the spikes were driven into his hands and feet, Peter turned to the executioner, his ancient gravelly voice as desperate as Mark had ever heard it. If you have an ounce of humanity left in you, sir, do not, do not suspend me the way that Jesus was put to death. I beg you, I beg you, at least hang me upside down. The crowd began to roar, let the man die however he wishes. The executioner looked to the emperor's box and lifted up his hands with his palms up. And Nero called out, what is it to me if he wants to die sideways? Just finish him. And so the executioner directed the slaves to turn the cross with Peter pinned to it upside down and to drop it into the hole. Peter let out a great groan as it violently settled in. My Lord and my God, he managed his voice constricted. Into your hands, I commend my spirit. And within seconds, Peter was dead. And so you say this morning, well, Chris, 
How in the world does that comfort me? How does that offer me any peace, any hope? Well, the reality of it is that the answer is not really that hard to find. You say, will we be persecuted? Perhaps. Will some of us suffer for our faith? Perhaps. Will we, will we be hauled into court? Some of us already have. Could we lose everything? Some already have. Is that God's will? Perhaps. Perhaps for us. Can our enemies kill us? They already have, some of us. But what happens then? Well, you almost wouldn't believe me if I told you. Because it's good news. It's the best news that you could possibly have because anybody can do anything to our body. They can take our body, but they can't take our soul. They can't touch our soul. And so the most blessed and happy person is the person who's decided to follow Jesus. Now, normally that would, we would expect that to mean that we could live a happy life in long days, but the reality of it is this morning that countless saints around the globe are suffering for their faith this very morning. They recognize that following Jesus offers no guarantees about life. But whether we live or we die, God has promised to protect us in the end. And if you understand that, you're blessed. Now, if your heart's set on earthly things, if it's set on possessions and pleasure and financial security, on business success, on upward mobility, on career advancement, then you are the most vulnerable. Because these things can get taken away so easily. And it's so easy to be hurt. But if you give your life to Jesus, if you enthrone him as Lord, no one, not even the devil, can take that away from you. You are totally secure. And so even in spite of your suffering, you are blessed. And that's what we mean when we say that we have a living hope. And so when we say God is good, Peter believed it. He was convinced of it to the point where he was willing to die for it. And so this morning, when we say this one more time, it's my prayer that you can say it with the same conviction and the same sincerity. When I say to you, Liberty Heights Church, God is good. And all the time, God is good. Let's bow our heads. I recognize that it is so much easier to stand up here and to allow the words to roll off our tongue. And on a Sunday morning, it seems so black and white and easy to understand. But I recognize that you wake up Monday morning and it's a different ballgame. And it's hard and it's difficult. And I know that the testimony of so many people in this room is not when persecution comes. It's persecution and suffering and pain are here right now. And so I want to pray for you this morning that you can cheer up, that you can turn the tables on this, that you can understand that suffering produces happiness that comes from being in that position of having God's favor and His provision on your life. But it's our job to make Jesus attractive in spite of that during those difficult times, and that is hard, and I recognize that. And so I want to pray for you 
this morning that we can all be a saint. Someone makes it easy to believe in Jesus. But I'm also smart enough to know that some people in this room have never accepted Christ, that have never determined in their hearts that only Christ matters. And this might seem a strange day as we talk about difficult times and hard times. This may be a little strange of a call to join the family. But the reality of it is, is that my life is testimony to the fact that in spite of the difficult things that happen, that God is good and there's hope and there's joy that comes from that. And I'm passionate about that. And I hope that you will be too. So I'm going to pray a prayer right now. And I'm going to ask that if you have not asked Jesus into your life as your Savior, that you would follow along in this prayer, and that this would be your heart's cry this morning. Dear Jesus, I recognize that I am a sinner. And I recognize that all the good things that I've done in my life, when stacked up, still aren't high enough to reach into heaven and to reach into your throne room. And so this morning, in recognition of my sinful past, I cry out and ask for forgiveness today that, God, you would be my Redeemer, recognizing that your blood paid the price. And, God, I ask you to come live in me and that others will see you in my life. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And God, I pray this morning for everybody else that's in the sound of my voice, God, that we'll walk out of here having settled that only Christ matters. And that, God, that will give us a renewed energy and a renewed vigor to approach life tomorrow morning when we wake up in such a way that our lives reflect Jesus. In fact, our lives make Jesus attractive, even to the point where people ask us about the hope that we have. And God, allow us to be gentle and respectful in our response. And God, help us to recognize these opportunities as coming from you. I thank you for the strength that you've given us. And it's only in our own weakness that your strength is present. And we thank you for that promise this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.